Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, whether you're here in person or online, whether you're returning to us from previous weeks or this is your first time here at Keystone, I'm convinced you've picked an absolutely excellent week to join us as you found us in a series called Because You Are Loved, a series where we examine the different graces and ways that we've been loved by our Heavenly Father and try to replicate that in our own lives to love the same way. Now, some of you are probably making an observation right now, at least I hope you are, an observation that looks something like, hey, this guy ain't Brady. (laughs) And if you noticed, well, kudos to you, you have a keen eye for observation. Um, This is true. My name is Grant, and there are a couple small and couple big differences between us that I think you actually need to know about. And of course, the first and smallest one is our small difference in height. It's only about three feet, right? (laughs) It's actually really annoying to walk next to him because it feels like take your kid to work day. Like, (laughs) we're about to cross a road. Hand, please. Hand, please. And this is, this is one of the smaller differences, actually. And we look nothing alike, right? Whereas I look like a sweet, bearded Rapunzel. Brady looks more like a thin, fit, and trim Dr. Nefario, right? <laughs> this is an artist replication of our image. Uh, I think he did a great job. I have to thank his sons for that joke. They made that, uh, not me. And, and to tell you the truth, This is not the biggest difference between us. The biggest difference between us is actually that in my time, in my life, I've done a lot more sinning. Uh, Unfortunately for, for some people, this is true. But jokes aside, I actually need you to know this. I actually need you to know that I haven't always lived my life in honorable ways. I haven't always lived in a way that I'm proud of. In fact, I've made a mess and a fool of myself more times than anyone could ever keep track of. And since I'm being honest, you also need to know that I haven't always been a Jesus follower. In fact, for a long time, I was what I would call a Jesus avoider. And I tell you this for a reason, right? I tell you this because if we were to build a scale and on one side put Jesus avoider, and the other side Jesus follower, well, virtually everyone that we know would fall somewhere on that scale. Virtually everyone we know is somewhere on the journey from one side to the other. Or they're rooting themselves further into place with where they find themselves on that scale. And a lot of people are surprised when I tell them, as somebody who's made this journey to one side and then back to the other, this is not an easy journey. This is a hard road to take. And it's it's difficult because the reality is there are some boundaries you have to cross to get from one side to the other. There are some barriers to becoming a, a follower, There are some walls that keep some people from making this journey completely. There are some walls that keep people rooted on the side of a voider. And I'm convinced that today's discussion, today, we are talking about the single biggest barrier, the single biggest reason that more and more people find themselves on the side of a voider, the single biggest reason that people say, I don't know if I want anything to do 
with following Jesus. And Caitlin already told you about it. But we need to frame this barrier in the form of a question, in the way that a Jesus avoider tends to struggle with it, right? And that question is, why are religious people so judgmental? And of course, you and I know that it's not just religious people. We know that all people are judgmental, but that's not the struggle of the Jesus avoider. The struggle of the Jesus avoider is why religious people have a tendency to be this way, and not just of the modern era. Ancient Jews had a tendency to be judgmental. People of the modern era have a tendency to be so. And to tell you the truth, at some point, the Jesus avoider has probably been hurt by judgment. At some point, somebody's probably weaponized judgment to cause them some sort of harm or somebody they loved. And now they're not sure if they want anything to do with the Jesus follower. You and I probably didn't create this baggage for them. But friends, as I'm going to argue, we as Jesus followers have an obligation to help them overcome this barrier. And we're absolutely able to do so. But in order to do so, we have to talk about three different things, right? We have to talk about why and when this happens so we can identify and make a change when it occurs. We have to talk about what we are told to do. And then we have to talk about how we implement it, how we make this change. So the why. Why are people... Why do people fall into the, the act and habit of judgment? Well, it turns out before I worked here at Keystone, I've worked for years in the mental health field studying human behavior and the causes of it. And I'm convinced there are two primary driving forces for why people fall into the act and the habit of judgment. And it's not an act of malice all the time, and it's not because somebody's mean. I think it's natural programming that we don't put in check. So there's two primary reasons people fall into the act of judgment. The first comes because we have a, a hyperactive sense and desire to self-preserve. We, we all want what's best for our family, ourselves, and our loved ones. It's programmed in us to have this desire. And as a result, we are constantly evaluating things to determine whether or not they are good for us. I mean, you can see this, this behavior an action at the grocery store, right? You go to the grocery store, the first thing you come across, fruits. Programming goes fruits, probably good for me. Then you go to the vegetables and the programming says, vegetables, probably good for me. And then by some mystery, you end up in front of the bargain and budget hot dogs, four for $5, and your programming goes, wait a second, you're not in college anymore. That's not really good for you. The thing is, this program, this program doesn't stop running once we leave the grocery store. This programming continues and applies to the behaviors that we see, to the people, and groups of people that we see. It's an automatic function. And if we don't put in check, what happens is that we are drawn towards what we believe is good, and we avoid what we consider to be not good as a desire to preserve ourselves, our loved ones, and our family. We start avoiding what we think is not good. And sometimes we even do this with things that we have a negative association with that are good, right? Have you ever had a food, and then afterwards you got sick? And you weren't sure. It could have been that food. It might not have been, but you avoided that food for years, 
Sound familiar? Right, we've all done it. Sometimes one bad experience can cause us to avoid things as well. We start avoiding the things that we feel are not good as a means of preserving self, family, and community. Well, reason number two that we fall into the act and the habit of judgment, right, is because we developed on a system of reward and consequence. This is how most of us were raised. You do something good, you are rewarded, so that behavior is encouraged. You do something bad, and there's typically a consequence or a punishment. This is how we learn to see the world as we were developing. The problem is, that's not really the way the rest of the world, world always works, right? I mean, a lot of times, especially in the modern age, good, good behavior isn't rewarded. And what we think is misbehavior, well, there are no consequences too. But it feels like there should be, and it feels wrong. It's not fair that I'm trying so hard to be righteous while somebody else gets to sin and have that much fun. And let's be honest, if sinning wasn't fun, nobody would do it. And if there were significant consequence to it, they might be deterred from it. But it doesn't feel right that I'm trying so hard to be righteous while someone gets to have so much fun without consequence. It doesn't make sense in our brains, especially when we developed on a system of reward and consequence. You see, these functions, they happen without us being constantly aware of it. And if we don't put them in check, we start avoiding what we consider not good. And quickly, we can see a divide that happens between somebody who is a Jesus follower and somebody who is not. Now, knowing why we fall into this habit, this act, is only half the battle. Maybe we can identify when it happens. We have to also talk about what we are taught, right? What we are taught to do and then how to apply it. So what we're taught to do, well, let's return to the Jesus avoider. Because the Jesus avoider is not unfamiliar with what we're told to do as followers. They typically know the first three words of the instructions given to us. And it comes from the book of Matthew. And Jesus said, do not judge. And automatically, anytime somebody's making an estimate of somebody else's behavior, determining that it's not good... In the eyes of a Jesus avoider, we've failed at this. But we have an obligation to help them understand the entire set of instructions and not just the beginning because this was the beginning of a much broader discussion. So Jesus did say, do not judge, but that's not all he said. He also said, do not judge. Sorry, I have to open the good book. He also said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. For in the same measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus said, for the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And this brings us to a truly fascinating question that if we haven't asked ourselves, it's certainly time to start. And we certainly should be asking ourselves something critical and often. Well, how do you want to be judged? How do you want to be judged? It's not a trick question. And, and I'll answer first, friends. The truth is, I don't want to be. But if I had to be, 
I'd want to be judged with mercy. Jesus says, do not judge. But if you find yourself unable to not judge, you better apply the golden rule of judgment. Judge others as you would have them judge you. Judge others as you would have yourself be judged. That's the golden rule of judgment. And if I had to choose a way that I was going to be judged, I would want to be judged with mercy. I would want to be judged with mercy. I wouldn't want you to look at one single time that I was a fool or made a mistake or one bad habit or tattoo. I'd want you to take a lot of things into consideration. I'd want you to look at the environment that I was raised in. I'd want you to look at the things that have happened, the things that I've seen, the things I've done, the things I've overcome. How do you want to be judged? If we haven't been asking ourselves that question it's certainly time. Because if we don't know how we want to be judged, we won't have a good idea of how we are doing it to other people. And Jesus' instructions, well, they also didn't stop there. He continued, right? He said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And of course, we've already discussed why. We, we can't seem to turn this programming off. We can't seem to not start evaluating whether or not things are good or bad. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Well, we pay no attention to the plank in our own eye either because we failed to notice, we failed to stop and check ourselves for sin, or We've critically misjudged the way that our sin is affecting life in the world versus somebody else's. And I'm guilty of this as much as anybody else. I do this all the time, right? The plank in my eye, that's not a big deal. That's, I mean, nobody even knows about the plank in my eye. It's not doing any harm to the world. But that speck, that speck, that's not good for them. That's not good for their family. That's not good for their community. We make a critical misjudgment of the effect of the speck and planks in our and each other's eyes. And when we do this, Jesus has some words for us. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. And at this point, I always stop because I feel like he's not talking to people 2,000 years ago. He's talking to me. He's talking to me. He's calling me out on the thing that I do constantly. He says, you hypocrite, how could you misjudge somebody else's speck, say that it's bad for the world, yet ignore the one in your own eye? Jesus calls us out and says, there is more. Jesus says that we first need to do something critical. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus' instructions are very clear. First, when you see somebody else's sin, you need to stop and evaluate your own life for sin. You need to work on yourself before you start helping anybody with theirs. First, 
work on your own sin. Then we are better off as people. Then we are better as a Jesus follower. But please notice that this is only what he says to do first. Well, of course, of course there's more. Because being a Jesus follower isn't a self-help movement. It has nothing to do about what can be done in our lives. It's about leveraging what God has done in our lives so that we can benefit others. The epicenter of Jesus' teachings was to love others the way that he loved us. So, of course, this is only what we are told to do first. And then he gives us follow-up instructions. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus commands us to work and address our sins so that we become better prepared to walk alongside others in their mess. And this, friends, this is huge. This is the difference between judgment and love. Saying that somebody's way of living, somebody's behavior is wrong and doing nothing doesn't create anything but barriers between Jesus followers and Jesus avoiders. It doesn't do anybody good and help them change their behavior. But acknowledging that we are been broken as well, that we have sinned and we are addressing it, and then offering to help somebody else in theirs is not judgment but an act of love. Love forbids me to size somebody up and walk away. Love forbids me to say the way that somebody's living is wrong and do nothing. Love forbids me to do that. When I reflect on this passage, I think it perfectly addresses three different audiences. And I know that I fall into these three categories at different points in my life, right? The first audience that this passage truly starts addressing is, is that sometimes we are self-righteous. Sometimes we size people up and we write them off. Sometimes we try to allow people to exist in what we consider to be the consequences of their own actions. Sometimes the sin of others, well, it doesn't break our hearts. But as a, as a Jesus follower, and we're, if we're trying to be more like him, well, the sin of others broke Jesus' heart. It should break ours too. And if the sin of others doesn't break your heart, then your heart might not have ever been broken over your own sin. And it might be time to repent of being self-righteous and follow the instructions that we've been given. Audience number two that I know that this perfectly applies to is that some of us, some of us size people up and walk away. Some of us the sin of others breaks our heart, but we do nothing. Some of us size people up and walk away. Whether we're trying to just simply protect ourselves, protect our loved ones, or protect our community, we think that we want to preserve things, or we don't have the courage to help. Well, the problem is, being a Jesus follower we're kind of obligated to, right? As a Jesus follower, it is our business to deal with difficult situations. It is our deal, it is, it is our duty to walk with people in their mess, regardless if it's hard or if it's not necessarily perfectly safe. Some of us size people up 
and walk away. Some of us do so because we're not sure that their life or behavior or their lifestyles will change. But that shouldn't be a condition of helping somebody, right? For example, say that you saw a helicopter in a tree. Well, it wouldn't matter how the helicopter got there. We would probably try to help if somebody needed it. And we wouldn't stand there and try to have a dialogue with somebody about whether or not that person would move forward in their life to sin or not. We would help simply because that's the right thing to do. And it's also what's happened in our own lives when we've been helped. In, in audience number three, some of us have been sized up, but we refuse to listen or we fail to listen. Maybe we've been working on it for a long time or maybe we've been telling ourselves, yeah, there's something I need to work on. And maybe somebody else pointed it out and it hurt and it hurt because they were onto something and, and you, you knew it. Well, friends, it's, it's, it's our first instruction is to work on that. And, and to be honest, it's so easy for most of us to agree to be helpers, but we can do just as much good for the world if we allow ourselves to be helped. Maybe it's time for some of us to seek it. Not only does it encourage a culture of helping, it provides us with a more expanded tool belt to help other people. For some of us, maybe it's time that we get help. So we've talked about the why. Why does this tend to happen? And we've talked about what we're instructed. But we have to talk about how. How do we apply this? How do we apply this moving forward? Well, I told you about my past. I told you about the countless times that I had made a fool and a mess of my life. What I didn't tell you was that each time I did, there was somebody there investing in a relationship with me. There was somebody there investing in a friendship. And they never agreed with the way I was behaving or my lifestyle choices, but agreeing or understanding wasn't a condition of their investment. And, and they never had a guarantee that I was going to change. But that wasn't a condition of their investment. My best friend Adam could have walked away a thousand times. And he never got a return on his investment. Yet he did it regardless of needing to agree or understand. And he did it regardless of the likelihood that I was going to change. And the most amazing thing was... My friend Adam wasn't the only one. There was one even greater than he, investing and chasing me down recklessly for a relationship, although I was behaving in whatever way. And it wouldn't have mattered if I came to love them back. It wouldn't have mattered if I were to change. They'd still be investing in me today. And it's the same Heavenly Father that has treated you in such a way. We have been chased down for a relationship when we were at our worst, when we were at our most selfish, when we were at our most hurt. Our Heavenly Father chased us down and invested in a relationship with us despite whether or not we were going to change and despite whether or not it was agreed or understood why we were doing what we were doing. Those weren't conditions of love 
an investment. Friends, when we have been loved in such a way, why would we love any different? Why would we love any different than the way that we have been loved? Because you were loved in such a way, you too should love the same way. Prioritizing a relationship over accepting and understanding a behavior or lifestyle is critical. And investing in a relationship despite somebody's likelihood to change that behavior or lifestyle is the way that we've been loved and the way that we've called been called to love. Why would we love any different than the way that we have been loved? And who knows, you could just be like my friend Adam to somebody else. But the only guarantee is that if we don't love this way, well, nobody gets to experience or gets closer to the experience of recognizing the love of their heavenly father. And it's our duty as Jesus followers to share that. And that, friends, is where we will leave off and pick up next week. I want to thank you for spending time with us on this beautiful 4th of July weekend. And if you're here in the room, I'd be so grateful and honored if you would stand as I close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for every single blessing that you've bestowed upon us, and we pray that you continue to bless us in the ways that you have planned. In this critical moment in the year, we come before you in gratitude. In gratitude for all the blessings that we've ever known because they've come directly from you. They've come from your love. And we pray that you open our hearts and minds so that we can be a reflection of that. So that we can remove all barriers to loving like you do. And it's in your matchless son's name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Peace and blessings, friends. See you next week. Thank you so much.